Hello everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader1. Or, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. Leonardo Cinciulli was born on April 18, 1894, in Montella, Avellino, Italy. She was conceived through rape when her mother, Emilia Dinolfi, was assaulted outdoors by Mariano Cinciulli. Her parents came from different social classes, with Emilia having enjoyed a life of privilege. He resented that she would never choose him due to his dismal financial situation, and he was eager to knock her down a few pegs to make her feel as low as he. He had been stalking her long before the rape, and it continued for quite some time afterwards. She would often see him while running errands about town, and when this happened, she was ashen. When Amelia's baby bump emerged, it enlarged to the point where she could no longer convincingly hide it from her parents. After they threatened to knock on doors until they found out who got her knocked up, she told them about the rape and the name of the perpetrator. She told them when it happened, and that was when she drew the line of the details she was willing to disclose. The rape made Amelia feel damaged and tainted. Ruined, even. When the Dinolfi family met with the Chinchuli family, they came to a conclusion about how to handle the situation, and it was the last thing Amelia would have wanted. It was decided that she and Mariano would marry. These were not progressive times, and there was a heavy price to pay when it came to the stigma of mothers whose children were born out of wedlock. Amelia and Mariano were married in haste with little fanfare. It was a stilted affair. Emilia and Mariano hadn't said a word to each other since the rape. 
Marrying your rapist does not invite sanguine expectations, and Mariano's abusive conduct demonstrated that he was already a poor cell as a husband. They lived in poverty and squalor, sharing an outhouse with their neighbors. Mariano raped Amelia on her marital bed. If the house was not clean and tidy, in accordance with his preferences, he would beat her. She was ill-suited to the role of homemaker because she was raised by a family that was wealthy enough to hire domestic servants. Nobody outside the house felt sorry for Amelia. They assumed she had sex with Mariano voluntarily and therefore deserved what they perceived to be a fall from grace. When Leonardo was born, Amelia felt no love or bond of any kind with the child. As far as Amelia was concerned, Leonardo was symbolic of her downturn in fortunes. Feeling powerless, Amelia took out her rage and frustrations out on Leonardo. Leonardo was beaten for nearly any transgression, no matter how trivial, and she was subjected to harsh criticisms. Leonardo was a target for her mother to direct her hatred, more often than not, landing a direct hit. The only relief came when Mariano died after a night of heavy drinking. Leonardo didn't mourn him because he had paid little attention to her. When Amelia had a moment alone at Mariano's grave after the diggers filled the hole, she spat on Mariano's final resting place and said, That man is a pig and it's for the best that we're rid of him. Emilia's family did not take her back after Mariano's death. They decided her conduct blemished the family name, and they were not keen on giving her a second opportunity to drag them through the mud. Eventually, Emilia would devote much of her spare time to carousing with the town's lowlife. They were criminals and other dodgy types, but they at least accepted her. Leonardo wound up with a new stepfather because of this, but while there was temporary financial relief, her lifestyle didn't get a permanent upgrade. Emilia also continued to abuse Leonardo, so the girl would suffer as always. In fact, now that her mother was happier, the abuse escalated. Leonardo reminded Emilia of the rape and the rapist that triggered her conception and the association drove her to inflict more violence on her daughter. The years of abuse took a toll on Leonardo's self-esteem and overall state of mental health. At the age of 12, she attempted suicide for the first time. She fashioned a noose out of bedsheets her mother neglected to wash, and hung herself from the rafters of the farmhouse in which they had been living at the time. The noose unraveled before it could kill her, though she did sustain a temporary injury when her larynx was crushed. She wasn't able to speak for a week. When Leonardo was 13 years old, she became resolved to take her own life once again. Leonardo finally escaped her mother's abuse when she married Raffaele Pansardi at the age of 23. Emilia had been meeting with society types in hopes that they would marry one of their sons to Leonardo, which would have elevated Emilia to the upper echelons of high society, which was where she felt she belonged, given her roots. When Emilia found out who Leonardo was marrying, 
She not only refused to give her blessing, but she cursed the union. In that culture, during that time period, belief in the supernatural was common. When someone vowed to consign a sworn adversary to a life of misfortune, the person on the receiving end took it seriously and awaited its manifestations with dread. Amelia's inability to manipulate the tides of fortune in Leonardo's life notwithstanding, her actions were not without impact. Whatever went wrong, and it could be something as insignificant as a spilt beverage, Leonardo would panic. Then again, Amelia had poisoned Leonardo's self-concept since the earliest years of her childhood. So Leonardo was doomed to a life devoid of faith in her own competence and worth. Leonardo feared the curse so much that the anxiety resulted in seizures, and those seizures resulted in injuries from falls. Leonardo and Raffaele enjoyed a better life after moving to southern Italy and settling in his hometown of Loria in Potenza. They were both employed, enjoying a better life financially, and because they were too far beyond the influence of Amelia Dinolfi and the upper crust of Montella society, Leonardo's anxieties were alleviated. Eventually, Leonardo came to realize that the curse her mother put on her wasn't real. Raffaele convinced her that her nervous temperament had more to do with her troubles than her mother's claim to have supernatural powers. The couple had a son in 1922 who was named Giuseppe. For the first time in her life, she felt that everything was going to be okay. It was symptomatic of maternal bias, but as far as she was concerned, Giuseppe was perfect. She had never felt such love, and she was determined to provide him with the auspicious life that Amelia denied to her. She took on menial jobs so that she could provide a more comfortable standard of living for her son. Giuseppe's birth succeeded where that of his would-be siblings had not. Miscarriages happened frequently due to seizures and falls. This made the birth of Giuseppe look even more miraculous in comparison. Eventually, Leonardo and Raffaele enjoyed more success in this area, having two daughters and another son. At first, it seemed Leonardo had beaten the curse. Eventually, this didn't seem so certain. Her three younger children began to suffer from illnesses. One of the girls suffered from a respiratory disorder. The boy experienced recurring rashes. The girl with the respiratory affliction only experienced worsening symptoms over time as fluid accumulated in her lungs and cut off her breathing when she lay down, similar to the effect of drowning. At one point, the girl died in Leonardo's arms. The boy was found dead in his cot. SIDS was unknown at the time, so the cause of his death remained undetermined. The death of the two children was beyond devastating to Leonardo. She became hysterical, tearing chunks of hair from her scalp. She quit her part-time jobs. She spent every waking moment watching her surviving children like a hawk, living in fear of what might befall them next. Though miscarriages were no longer a problem, more of the couple's children died before their third year of life. Five boys perished from illness, 
and with their departure to the grave, they exported portions of their mother's sanity as cargo. In the meantime, she smothered her surviving children. When Raffaele suggested she return to work, she refused. Determined to keep a watchful eye on her children, even with the onset of redundancy. It didn't benefit the children much, since any unfortunate incident, no matter how insubstantial, was catastrophic in the eyes of their histrionic mother. Eventually, Raffaele persuaded her to take a position as a cleaner in a local bank. It was while she toiled in this position that her tenth baby died. With the death of that child went the last vestiges of her self-control. 1927. Leonardo was determined to save up a nest egg to benefit her family and was willing to obtain it by any means necessary. That included an act of fraud at the bank, and when she went to collect the money, she was arrested. She was charged, convicted, sentenced, and sent to prison. She was sent to a repurposed nunnery, though the nuns were very much in charge of the facility and her incarceration. Leonardo could deal with this. After 20 years of living with her mother, it couldn't possibly have been worse. At least nuns didn't curse people. Shame was their game. After Leonardo's release from prison, she and Raffaele moved to a town called Lecidonia. The family was happy. She even became pregnant during their time there. Her child was brought to term and was born healthy. Leonardo was suspicious that the universe would suddenly be so beneficent toward her. She didn't trust this spell of good fortune, so her bond with her new son was forged entirely of perfunctory obligation. She didn't love him like she loved Giuseppe, but she did her maternal duty and cared for him to the best of her ability. It was about this time that a destructive earthquake occurred in the area. Leonardo became convinced the curse was not only real, but that she was to blame for the earthquake. She felt that her presence was heralded by a baleful incantation, inaudible but undeniable in its certainty, and the fates responded in kind, wreaking destruction and death on everything and everyone that resided in her path. The earthquake also destroyed everything Leonardo's family owned. They had to start again from scratch, and she knew little about auspicious beginnings. Out of the ten children to whom Leonardo gave birth, four survived. They made the trip with Leonardo and Raffaele when they resettled in the town of Correggio. As refugees, they received donations from many of the townsfolk. Soon after their arrival, Raffaele was given a job and the family moved into a small house. Leonardo no longer felt that she had to monitor her children so closely. During the earthquake, she realized that chaotic forces out of her control could not only affect their lives, but they were immune to her intervention. She was enjoying life for the first time ever. The family's financial standing was secure, and she was enjoying motherhood in a way she never had before. Instead of worrying that the children could die at any moment, she reveled in the joys and milestones that were part of their childhoods. Leonardo even cultivated a social life, 
befriending some of the local women, many of whom had extended many kindnesses her way when her family arrived after being deracinated and stripped of everything they owned. In her spare time, she took to writing poetry, and she entertained the women who hosted dinner parties by reading her work. They responded enthusiastically in recognition of an uncommon talent in their midst. She wasn't treated like a second-hand citizen, and this too was gratifying to her. The house Leonardo and her family lived in was attached to a storefront. She decided to make and sell soap. During her time as a cleaner, she experimented with different formulas to come up with the perfect admixture. She perfected her soap recipes while cleaning her own home. Now she would do it with the kind of personal cleaning products that would be put to personal use by the public. With Raffaele's approval, she ordered the gross of perfumes and oils she would need to outfit her business with its first inventory. A few weeks later, Leonardo's soap shop was open for business, and business was good. Friends tested the products, and through word of mouth, Leonardo's reputation as a soap maker became a poorly kept secret throughout the nation of Italy. Her family prospered like never before. Her prayers had been answered. She had risen from the ashes of poverty and a natural disaster like the proverbial phoenix and emerged triumphant. If only the gossips of Montella could have seen her then. Another thing that gave Leonardo's social standing a boost was her ability as a psychic. She learned the art of palm reading from the Romani, and soon the female society of Correggio were eager to have their fortunes told. Eventually, men and entrepreneurs came to her for advice. She had become a person of considerable importance. She expanded her repertoire in this area when the Romani visited her. They gave her tarot cards runes, books on the occult, and astrology, and other paraphernalia as bartering items in exchange for soap. There was a burgeoning spiritualist and mesmerist movement in Italy at the time, so Leonardo's activities in this area were consistent with the zeitgeist. Eventually, Leonardo's interest in alternative spirituality and the paranormal had her venturing into darker areas. She developed an obsession with an Italian form of folk magic called Stregaria. She read every book on the subject she could get her hands on. She eventually read about other forms of witchcraft that enjoy popularity in other European countries. These books emphasized theory over practice. Leonardo wanted to practice practical magic. Her associates among the Romani connected her to practitioners located throughout Italy who possessed the information she was seeking. She learned about these disciplines by corresponding with women who were experts on the subject. Eventually, reading and contemplating such practices failed to satisfy Leonardo. She wanted to become a fatuciere, or fixer. Using the ingredients of spells, she believed that Having become such a practitioner, she could hurt or heal anybody who was deserving, depending on their actions. She used herbs and other natural remedies to practice what might be deemed naturopathy today, though this practice was informed more by superstition than science. Things were going spectacularly well, 
until 1939, when Mussolini came knocking. Giuseppe loved his mother, but he was anxious to break free from the apron strings. He realized one way to do this was to enlist in the army. Leonardo was not happy about this decision, especially considering the likelihood that it could result in his untimely death. Still, when he returned home after enlisting, he found his mother to be surprisingly calm about it. He found her after she had been consulting her witchcraft books for hours. The solution, as she saw it, was that she could prevent her son's death by adhering to something she learned about while studying alchemy. It is called the Law of Equivalent Exchange. Simply put, if you want something, you have to provide something of equal value. In order to save her son's life, Leonardo would have to sacrifice another. It would require a ritual to transfer one soul to another, and then to convey that soul to Giuseppe to ensure his protection. The truth was, the only surefire way to make the spell work, as she saw it, was to commit murder. She didn't feel comfortable with this realization, but it was there, and it nagged at her. Normally, she never harmed another human being if she could help it. She couldn't even bring herself to slaughter an animal. But this was different. Her son's life was at stake. She decided it was unavoidable. She would avoid causing the victim undue harm, though that was technically impossible. She justified the act to herself, feeling that it was for the greater good. It was decided. Somebody had to die. Every day of the week, Leonardo had at least one appointment with a woman from town. The women who consulted her the most for her spiritual guidance were those who were alone, lonely, and vulnerable. Given that a world war was underway, the future looked bleak and uncertain, especially with so many husbands and sons losing their lives on the battlefield. One woman who met with Leonardo was Faustina Setti. She was an independent woman and a spinster. This was a different time, and such women were subjected to ridicule and condemnation in Italy. Faustina was subjected to more mockery than most other women in her position. She was unlucky in love, with broken engagements and bachelors who were reluctant to associate with such a woman for fear of losing their own social standing. Any psychic reader knows that love is one of the top five concerns about which they are consulted. Faustina was terrified of what would befall her reputation if she was still single in her 40s. Leonardo did not predict a happily ever after following a fairy tale romance. Instead, she foresaw the woman's lifelong journey through a sexual wasteland, telling her it was her destiny to depart from her life as a virgin who was sure to enter the kingdom of heaven untainted. Not exactly the answer Faustina was hoping for. She left Leonardo's house discouraged. The next time Faustina paid Leonardo a visit, Leonardo seemed to be possessed. She was bursting at the seams with manic energy. She grabbed Faustina by the hands and proclaimed, I've found you a husband. She told her about a man who lived in a country called Pola, which was later annexed into what is now known as Croatia. 
He had seen Faustina's picture and fell in love at first sight, according to Leonardo. Leonardo told Faustina that she sent letters to him on Faustina's behalf, up to and including wedding plans. As a dowry of sorts, Seti gave her life savings to Leonardo, which was to be used to move to Pola and receive additional guidance from Leonardo. Leonardo urged Faustina to write letters to her family and friends, notifying them of her impending marriage. On the eve of a whole new life, Faustina was overwhelmed. Everything was going to change overnight, and though she was elated, it was a lot to take in, and she was on edge. Leonardo brought her to her kitchen table. She said, Sit and calm yourself. All will be well soon enough. Leonardo brought a decanter full of wine to the table. She poured some into a glass. She said, For your nerves. Faustina took a sip. She felt a little calmer almost instantaneously. Leonardo was beaming. She said, Go on, drink up. It'll help. There was something different about the last gulp of the wine. There was some kind of gritty sediment at the bottom. The taste also became herbal and bitter toward the end. Leonardo watched her intently. Faustina began to feel uneasy. She said, Leonardo? Faustina began to feel sluggish. She couldn't coordinate her movements with the customary level of control. She couldn't articulate what she was trying to say. Her tongue was an inanimate worm. When she turned to Leonardo, she found that she was not there. Faustina took another look at the wine glass. Powders and herbs remained, and it looked as though they had been insufficiently blended. Suddenly, Leonardo came from another room, axe in hand. She was speaking, but Faustina was so groggy she couldn't focus on what she was saying. It was only when Leonardo brought the axe down upon her head that she could focus at all. She heard her say, sorry. The axe was heavy, and Leonardo wielded it clumsily. She brought it down on Faustina's shoulder. Faustina became incontinent, her bowels evacuating involuntarily. She bled profusely. Leonardo was so invested in killing, her senses did not pick up on such stimuli. Tears began to flow from Faustina's eyes. Leonardo was impervious to appeals for clemency. She brought the axe down upon Faustina once again, this time landing a direct hit on the center of Faustina's head. She still lacked the strength to do the intended damage. Instead of breaking through Faustina's skull, it slid off the bone and sliced off a section of her scalp and face, leading to more copious bleeding. If she kept it up, Faustina would be a candidate for sausage-making. Regardless, Leonardo knew there was no turning back. The consequences incurred from having a victim walking the streets would be catastrophic for her and her family. Leonardo kept swinging. Slowly but surely, she hacked away at the woman, littering the floor with her flesh and bone. Pools of blood expanded at her feet. It took a long time for Faustina to stop screaming. Leonardo was impatient for the woman to die. The screaming grew louder. 
Suddenly it dawned on her that it was she who had been screaming. When Leonardo came to this realization, she dropped the axe. When it hit the floor, it splashed in a puddle of blood. She examined her handiwork. Faustina was dead with her remains splattered all over the floor. She couldn't just stand and stare. If she was serious about preventing Giuseppe's death, and she was, she had to get to work. The spell was not completed. The next step in the process was to drain all the blood that remained in Faustina's body. She hung the body parts from hooks she used to dry herbs. The blood drained into basins. The blood on the floor was mopped away. She massaged and wringed every last droplet of blood out of Faustina's corpse. She poured the blood into trays and then put them into her oven. Leonardo took Faustina's body parts and placed them in pots of caustic soda. She used this compound to render fat into soap. It was corrosive enough to dissolve every part of the woman's body, even her bones. Besides the murder and dismemberment of Faustina, it was a routine day for Leonardo. She assembled ingredients for tea cakes. She rendered down Faustina's fat until it turned a repugnant shade of brown. It had melted into a soap-like consistency. It simmered, hissed, and bubbled. She sang a jaunty song as she went about her business. When she removed the trays from the oven, a thin, rust-colored membrane coated the bottom. She scraped it into a bowl and combined it with flour, sugar, and eggs. She added vanilla to prevent any possibility that Giuseppe or anyone else could taste a human being's blood in the tea cakes. When she sampled one, she couldn't taste the blood, though it was always in the back of her mind after she made of her place of business a literal bloodbath. After cleaning the kitchen and her clothes of every spot of blood, it was as if she hadn't slaughtered a human being in there. When she checked on the admixture in her pot that was to be used as a soap to scrub Giuseppe free of the threat of death, she was appalled. Her recipe had yielded nothing but foul-smelling slop. She killed Faustina for nothing. She emptied the pots into buckets and poured the contents into a nearby septic pit. The way she saw it, it was a suitable end for a wasted life. Nobody would miss Faustina, least of all Leonardo. She didn't shed a single tear for her, and neither would anybody else. Leonardo wept for Giuseppe. She had failed, and she was terrified that her incompetence in this matter would leave him perforated by bullets. In the meantime, Raffaele and guests from in town ate the rest of the evidence in the form of tea cakes. August of 1940 was the time when Giuseppe was due to be picked up by the military recruiter and dispatched for his basic training. For Leonardo, there was a countdown to that day that she needed to beat in order to save her son. She had to perfect the spell this time. Francesca Soavi was about to be widowed by her ailing husband and her future looked bleak with financial privation and a lack of job opportunities, painting a bleak portrait of the years to come. 
Francesca didn't go to Leonardo to have her fortune told or to have a spell cast. She needed connections so she could get a job. Realizing this was the bait that would draw the woman onto her hook, Leonardo had a proposition for her. She told her about a prestigious school for girls in Piacenza. September 5th, 1940. Once arrangements were made, or it appeared so, Francesca was ready to be devoured. When she was preparing for her departure to the school, Leonardo welcomed her into her home to cast a spell. She was informed that a beverage prepared by Leonardo would ensure a smooth transition into her new life and continued good fortune in the years to come. Soon after ingesting the drink, Francesca experienced a sensation like the room was spinning. She nearly fell off her chair before Leonardo grabbed her and held her in place, saying, Rest easy. Francesca was losing autonomy over her senses. As she descended into unconsciousness, she caught a glimpse of Leonardo going through her pockets and purse. She removed the money Francesca intended to use to commute to her destination. Leonardo took up the axe. She was more level-headed and prepared this time. She placed basins on the floor to catch all the blood. She was methodical with the axe, lining it up so that she could strike with as few blows as possible, so she wouldn't make a mess. She took a swing, and the axe's blade landed in the side of Francesca's head. A torrent of blood sprayed out of her head and filled the metal basins. It is easier to drain blood from an apportioned body. Leonardo kept hacking and hacking and hacking away, systematically severing Francesca's head, torso, and limbs. She noticed the yellow layer that existed in all Francesca's parts after the blood was washed away. It was fat. She wondered if the absence of fat had prevented the previous attempt to produce a satisfactory bar of soap from her victim. Faustina had been too gaunt. After all the blood had been drained, it was poured into baking trays until it reached the rim. Francesca's body parts were placed in caustic soda. Francesca included blood in the tea cakes, as before. This time, the taste of blood was strong and impossible to ignore. She assumed everything was working out as planned. When she checked on the pot at the stove, she found that her efforts yielded the same useless sludge as before. She felt like tossing the pot across the room, but when she grabbed the handles, she burned the palms of her hands. Taking her knowledge of palmistry into account, she felt that this burn mark meant that she reached a new turning point. Giuseppe hadn't been called away to war just yet, and Leonardo was still obsessed with perfecting the formula so that she could make the perfect soap that would protect him. Leonardo's next client-slash-victim was Virginia Cacioppo. Cacioppo was an opera singer and enjoyed an elevated social status in the community as a result. Leonardo was jealous of Virginia because of the admiration in which she was constantly basking. 
They started as friends. Virginia bought Leonardo's soap. Eventually, they bonded as artists, with Virginia as the singer and Leonardo as the poet. They spent many happy hours gossiping over innumerable bottles of wine. Eventually, Virginia sought Leonardo's services as a psychic reader as well. Virginia's prestige in the community gave Leonardo's a boost, which was something for which she was exceedingly grateful. One day, Leonardo was informed that it was all coming to an end. Virginia declared her intention to leave town. Leonardo felt betrayed. She felt like they had a partnership of sorts. Virginia had to leave. Her savings were depleted, and she didn't want to be a burden to her brother, who had been supporting her somewhat. Leonardo tried to delay Virginia's departure by using her connections to get a job, but there wasn't much work for women in those days. There was even less work for an opera singer in such a small town. Leonardo decided that the perfect life to sacrifice for her special child was that of an extraordinary human being like Virginia Cacioppo. Leonardo knew that she would mourn the loss of Virginia. It would be a difficult experience, but the pain she would endure would further ensure that the spell would be effective as a barrier between Giuseppe and the grave. The difficult part was in luring her into her home. The last two women she killed were in dire straits and desperately in need of Leonardo's help. They practically stumbled into her web. Virginia's brother would likely be aware of her whereabouts, so Leonardo had to concoct an elaborate and convincing story that Virginia would find easy to believe. It started when Leonardo informed Virginia that not only had she found her a job, but he was the type that was commensurate with her experience and skill set. She withheld details, however. Being possessed of a romantic disposition, the mystery of it retained Virginia's attention. Virginia pushed Leonardo to disclose details. Leonardo was reluctant to divulge them, but gradually she fed her information, but only under condition that she keep it confidential. Eventually, Leonardo told her that it was a secretarial job that would involve working for an arts-related organization. Parties and hobnobbing with the upper echelons of the socially connected would dovetail with the position. The position would require her to relocate to a large city in the south of Italy. The man who would employ her was a wealthy impresario who used his considerable wealth to finance operas, art shows, ballet, and other such events. She would be involved in the management of some of these affairs. If she played her cards right, she might even get opportunities to sing on stage again. The man knew about her and was keen to see if the time would be right to put her on stage again. He lived just outside of Florence, and she would be placed in an apartment in the city. This scenario was a magic spell in and of itself. Leonardo knew exactly what Virginia would want, and soon she was putty in her hands. When Virginia asked questions Leonardo couldn't answer, Leonardo would use the cover story that the impresario was secretive about his business affairs. It sounded legit. Virginia was notified that the details of her travel arrangements would be delivered to her door on the day of her departure. 
Leonardo was determined that she would slay Virginia as efficiently as possible. This murder would hurt, and she wanted to minimize the impact it would make on her emotionally. September 30, 1940. After saying farewell to her brother, Virginia left his home bound for Leonardo's house. She arrived just before noon. She was surprised by what she encountered. The soap shop was closed. Nobody was home. Usually both Leonardo's shop and home were hives of activity. Leonardo took one look at Virginia and knew that killing her was going to be more difficult than she anticipated. Virginia was looking her best, more glamorous than Leonardo had ever seen her, wearing furs and jewelry. How could she kill somebody who was, well, somebody? She was not just a face in the crowd. She was living her best life, and at the time, it would have been enviable to just about anybody who hadn't risen to the ranks of diva as she had. These feelings subsided when Leonardo was stricken by feelings of inferiority. All those years when she had been cast out by her family and looked down upon by the locals in Montella, she saw their faces in Virginia. Leonardo assumed that Virginia likely considered Leonardo to be a peasant by contrast. She was slumming. Leonardo was a punchline when Virginia needed a laugh. There was no concrete evidence of this, but Leonardo arrived in Correggio with a chip firmly planted on her shoulder. This outfitted Leonardo with the anger she would need to disburden Virginia of her extremities. Leonardo and Virginia sat at the kitchen table. After getting her guests settled, Leonardo left the room to fetch her a glass of wine from the pantry. Virginia declined, saying it was too early in the day to drink alcohol and that she wanted to remain sober for her commute. Leonardo persisted, giving Virginia several reasons for why she should drink it. Eventually, she wore her down, and Virginia, not wanting to create bad blood with the woman who arranged for her uptick in fortunes, couldn't bring herself to offend her. She said, "'I don't know why you're so intent on me drinking this wine.' But if it is important to you, then I shall. As Virginia dropped out of consciousness, Leonardo stripped her of her jewelry and expensive clothing. She placed it all in Virginia's travel trunk and put it in storage. Leonardo swung the axe up in the air, yelping as she did so. She brought it downward, plunging it deep into Virginia's chest. Realizing that such an action requires all the strength the executioner can muster, she sliced through Virginia's flesh with such force she broke her ribs. She cut a deep split into her skin, and blood erupted from the wound like lava from a volcano. Leonardo yanked the axe back out. She swung again, dismembering Virginia's arm. She severed her other arm. Propelled by an aching pain in her arms, Leonardo hacked away at Virginia's body in a frenzy. She held her breath as much as possible so she wouldn't smell the stench of death. The blood filled the metal basins as the wine filled Virginia's glass shortly before her death. 
Leonardo was delighted to see that beneath Virginia's skin was a copious layer of adipose tissue. Fat is like gold when you're a soap maker, and this was like prospecting in the Yukon. Leonardo put every chunk of Virginia's flesh in the pots on her stove and cranked up the heat. She watched as the caustic soda dissolved the flesh. There was something about the smell that didn't sit right with her. Her eye began to twitch. She had to fix something. Leonardo dug through Virginia's trunk, knowing that there would be perfume within. She discovered an expensive fragrance and brought it back to the kitchen. She poured the entire bottle into the soap-making pot. This, she felt, would guarantee that it would smell like Virginia. Feeling like the admixture would blend successfully this time, she put a lid on the pot. When Leonardo tried some tea cakes she made with Virginia's blood, she was surprised to find that they were sweeter than usual. Virginia had some kind of chemical Midas touch. Leonardo checked on her soap soup and was ecstatic to find that everything had come together. The soap was as rich and creamy as any other she had made. It had a sweet and floral aroma. She added the final ingredient unintentionally, that being tears. She was mournful about the death of her friend, yet also grateful for what she had given her, even if it had been taken by force. Giuseppe would return at night to eat the tea cakes and bathe with the soap, and Leonardo couldn't have been happier. When Giuseppe got into the bath that night, Leonardo watched him intently. He was understandably uncomfortable. She was checking his body for injuries, worried that she had taken too long to create the perfect soap for him. She started touching him, even on his genitals, and he pulled away, shuddering with disgust. Later, Giuseppe sat at the kitchen table. He was uncomfortable around Leonardo now. She offered him the tea cakes, but he declined. She pushed them up to his mouth as if he were a baby who needed to be spoon-fed. Their relationship was sure to be impacted by this behavior, but she was able to forgive herself, believing that she had saved his life. Giuseppe was so disturbed by his mother's inappropriate touching that the experience inserted a wedge between them. Now, he was more impatient than ever to cut the apron strings and make a life for himself on his own. Leonardo was able to accept this if it meant preventing his death. In the subsequent days, she served the blood-infused tea cakes to guests and gave remnants of Giuseppe's soap to friends. Giuseppe counted the days to his departure. Virginia Cacioppo's sister-in-law found the circumstances of Virginia's disappearance puzzling and suspicious. She began an investigation, approaching people who knew Virginia well and asking them questions to see if she could draw out some satisfying leads. Nobody had a clue. Mrs. Cacioppo tried a different tack. Instead of asking who was responsible, she decided to examine everybody's suspicions and theories. She decided to approach Leonardo Cinciulli. Though she had always scoffed at the idea of psychic readings and spoke derisively of women who had consulted them, 
She decided that Leonardo was as good a person to ask about Virginia's disappearance as any other. When she arrived at Leonardo's place, Leonardo took her by her hand and pulled her in, inviting her to a cup of coffee and a palm reading. She had done this with every other client, but Mrs. Cacioppo wasn't nearly as receptive. After Leonardo predicted happiness and a clean bill of health for Mrs. Cacioppo's grandchildren, Mrs. Cacioppo shifted gears and brought Virginia into the conversation. Something changed about Leonardo's disposition. She became dour. She apologized, but declined to tell Mrs. Cacioppo any more than what she already knew. She just mentioned that Virginia told her about the trip she was about to take. She began to cry and explain the tears away by saying that she was still grieving. Mrs. Cacioppo became more suspicious. Mrs. Cacioppo approached some of Leonardo's neighbors to get some information about Virginia's departure. Nobody saw her leave Leonardo's home. Nobody saw a taxi arrive or depart. They saw her enter Leonardo's house but didn't see her leave. Feeling this was enough anecdotal evidence on which to build a case, she went to the superintendent of police, Reggio Emilia. Emilia interviewed Leonardo's neighbors and found that their recall the dates they had seen all the women who disappeared coincided with the last time they saw them enter the home of Leonardo Cianciulli. Leonardo was brought in for questioning. She gave the police nothing. She was a charlatan psychic who had mastered the art of deception. Beyond acknowledging that she provided services for the women, she denied possessing knowledge of their whereabouts. She mentioned that most women in town would get a reading from her before embarking on long-distance travel. The police traced the sources of the mail that was sent to the missing women. They didn't trace them back to Leonardo, but they did draw a straight line to Giuseppe, who was still living at Leonardo's address. With this evidence, the police were able to search their house. When they examined the contents of a closet, they found possessions that had been confirmed as belonging to the three women who disappeared, items that had been made to order for Virginia and that in some cases bore her name, were found. Giuseppe was suspected of committing murder, and he was brought into the police station for questioning. He gave them nothing because he knew nothing. A few hours later, Leonardo showed up at the police station. Knowing that her son was likely to do hard time for murders he didn't commit, she recognized it was her duty to confess to what she had done. At first, the police assumed it was a morbid attempt at humor. However, after she described her murder methodology to them, they realized she wasn't kidding. Only the murderer would know those details. Giuseppe was just as upset as the police. When they told him what his mother told them, he vomited. First, she molests him. Then she makes him bathe with soap made from a dead woman's flesh. And now, to top it all off, he found out his mother is a serial killer. There had been rumors for years that Leonardo practiced witchcraft and Satanism. Now she had disgraced her family entirely. Nobody bought her soap, and the shop went under. The family scattered, 
fleeing the town to escape the humiliation of having a mother who had murdered women and made soap out of their bodies. Giuseppe was relieved to leave for war. Compared to what he was leaving behind, the battlefield looked like Eden in comparison. He didn't even stop by the jailhouse to say goodbye to his mother. Raffaele supported Leonardo, though he was a shell of his former self. The stress of the situation diminished whatever strength he had within him. During the trial, Leonardo regaled the court with all the graphic details of the murders. It invigorated her whenever she saw a relative of a victim flinch or become queasy. At one point, one of her former neighbors expressed skepticism that her story could be true. Her response? If I lift up my skirt and wipe your eyes, maybe then you'll see clearly. Throughout her testimony, Leonardo would crack dirty jokes. She would be the only one laughing. She interrupted while others were speaking. She enjoyed being the center of attention and reveled in the censure she received as a murderess. At one point, a coroner testified, saying that he was experienced with acids. He said that a body cannot be destroyed with caustic soda, as Leonardo claimed. To Leonardo, this declaration was an outrage. She said, Bring a body to court. Give me a body of any age, right now, and I shall prove it. She was muffled and dragged away. It had become obvious that she wished to cause harm to the coroner. After a three-day trial, Leonardo Cinciulli was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Were she to emerge alive, she would spend three years in a psychiatric hospital, from which she would only be released if it was determined that a free society would be safe counting her among its numbers. Leonardo wrote an autobiography while in prison. She told the story of her life, described her murders in detail, and included several of her recipes, including her tea cake, though that recipe didn't include human blood. Oddly enough, the baking recipes are considered some of the most comprehensive collections of Italian baking techniques ever compiled, and are consulted to this day. October 14, 1970. Leonardo Cinciulli died from intracranial bleeding with the official cause of death given as cerebral apoplexy. She was 76 years old. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.